FYI, this podcast contains spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to a flashback episode of the podcast that goes snicked. I'm your host, Jason Venable. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple of different issues, and then we're going to have a couple of very special guests. And we're going to talk about Wolverine and some comics, because that's what you expect from the podcast that goes snicked. So without any further ado, let's talk about some comics. Alright, here we go. Okay, before we get to our guest, um, I want to talk about Heroes for Hope number one uh, from 1985. This was a charity relief type comic book. Um, actually, on the cover, it even said in a little box, all proceeds from this comic book are being donated to famine relief and recovery in Africa. And this is what is kind of described commonly now, and I think even they referred to it back then, as a jam issue. Lots of different contributors. And just a little bit of background. I mean, if you were alive, or if you're not, maybe you have heard people say, you know, in the mid-80s, there was a pretty big focus on, like, charity and relief. And not that there's not now. I think there definitely still is. But there were events. Um, you know, stuff like Farm Aid, Live Aid, these big concerts, these big relief concerts. And you know, looks like Marvel kind of wanted to get in on the action and, and do their part to help, which, you know, if you're making books about superheroes, then yeah, why wouldn't you want to do something a little superheroic, right, with your company? So, so that's kind of the background. Um, you know, Jim Shooter, who was editor-in-chief at the time, you know, says he was approached by Jim Starlin and Bernie Wrightson about the idea for the book. And then uh, they recruited the artist, and then Chris Claremont, an ex-editor at the time, and Nocenti, recruited the writers. And there's a little bit of everybody writing-wise. Um, people in Marvel, people, you know, from the writing and art, the, maybe from the distinguished competition a little bit, that wanted to get in and just kind of help. I mean, this was bigger than Marvel. There's people that weren't even in comics. Uh, when I get to the credits, you'll recognize a couple of big names in novels and literature. Um I think that's just a testament to the, the people just wanted to contribute and help. Uh, Jim Shooter, we'll talk a little bit about some of the controversy after I talk about the book, but um, he says that the getting this up and running from the Marvel standpoint, from the creative standpoint, with, with everyone that contributed was super easy, no, no big obstacles, no hurdles. His only regret is that 
they only had so many pages that they could get volunteers for. Um, everyone that contributed to the book donated their work, uh, did it pro bono, or maybe maybe in the uh, in the vein of '80s release stuff, they did it pro bono. <laughs> Um, but anyway, yeah, so he said the only really regret is they had to turn people down, that there were more people that wanted to contribute to the book than they had room to fit in the comic. So I thought that was really cool. Speaking of the credits, and reading these credits may be the longest part of this this segment. <laughs> the story overall, like the overarching plot, is uh, by Chris Claremont and Nascenti, Bernie Wrightson, Jim Starlin, and Jim Shooter. And of course, Shooter says he really didn't have too much to do with it. But anyway, um, it's edited by Anna Santia and Chris Claremont, and that's a big deal. Of course, not only did they recruit the writers, but as editors, uh, a jam issue, especially of this magnitude, is a big deal to edit and to keep it all cohesive and together in a story. And of course, they had some assistance by Pat Blevins and Terry Cavanaugh. So... Ooh, let's let's get to these big credits here. It breaks it up by pages. Pages one to two, written by Stan Lee, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Al Gordon, letters by Tom Orzikowski, colors by Dana Grazianis. Pages three and four, written by Stan Lee again, this time penciled by John Bashima, inked by Klaus Jansen, letters by Tom Orzikowski, and colors by Marie Severin. Page 5, written by Ed Bryant, penciled by God Loves Man Kills alumni Brent Anderson, each by Joe Sennett, letters by Phil Felix, colors by Bob Sharon. Pages 6 and through 8, written by Louise Simonson, penciled by John Byrne, each by Terry Austin, letters by Mike Higgins, and colors by Petra Scotese. Page 9, Ed Bryant, again the writer. Brent Anderson, again the penciler, this time inked by Dan Green. Lettered by Phil Felix, colors by Bob Sharon. Pages 10 to 12, written by horror novelist extraordinaire Stephen King. Pencils by Bernie Wrightson. Inks by Jeff Jones. Letters by Tom Orzakowski. And colors by Christy Scheel. Pages 13 and 14, written by Bill Mantlow, penciled by Charlie Vess. Inks by Jay Muth, or Muth, I'm not sure. Uh, letters by Janice Chang, colors by Christy Scheel. Page 15, written again by Ed Bryant, and penciled by Brent Anderson. This time, inked by Tom Palmer. Letters by Phil Felix, colors by Bob Sharon. Pages 16 to 18, written by Alan Moore. Penciled by Richard Corbin, inked by Richard Corbin. Letters by Jim Novak, colors by Michelle Wrightson. Pages 19 to 21, written by Ann Nascenti, penciled by Mike Kaluta, inked by Al Milgram. Letters by Lois Buhalis, maybe. Uh, oh, she definitely did it, maybe on my pronunciation. Uh, colors by Glennis Oliver. 22 to 24 pages, written by Harlan Ellison, penciled by Frank Miller, and inked by Bill Sankiewicz, which... First time collabo for them, so that's, and those are pretty sweet pages, visually. Letters by John Workman, and colors by Christy Scheel. Pages 25 to 26, written by Chris Claremont. Penciled by Brian Bolland, or Boland. Of course, you might know him most from uh, The Killing Joke. Obviously a pretty huge graphic novel that, that he drew there. Eat by Craig Russell. 
uh, lettered again by Lois Buhalis, colors by Glennis Oliver. Pages 27 to 28, written by Joe Duffy, penciled by John Bolton of classic X-Men fame. Also inked the same uh, letters by Ron Zalmi and colored by John Bolton as well. Pages 29 to 30, written by Mike Barron, penciled by Steve Rude, inked by Carl Potts, lettered by Diana Albers, colors by Marie Severin. Pages 31 to 32, written by Denny O'Neill. Penciled by Brett Blevins, inked by Al Williamson, lettered by Janice Chang, colors by Dana Graziunas. Pages 33 to 35, written by Game of Thrones writer George, he just listed as George Martin here, of course we know him now as George R.R. Martin. Penciled by Herb Tripp, inked by Sal Basima, lettered by John Costanza, and colors by Glennis Oliver. Pages 36 to 37, written by Bruce Jones, penciled by Gray Morrow. Also inked by Gray Morrow, lettered by Joe Rosen, colors by Anna Sinti. I didn't even know she could do that. Pages 38 to 39, written by Steve Englehart, penciled by Paul Galachi. These are both pretty big names in D.C. at the time. Inked by Bob Layton, lettered by Ron Zalmi, colors by George Rusis. Pages 40 to 41, written by Jim Shooter, penciled by Alan Weiss. You know, Vice. Um, inked by Joe Rubenstein, letters by John Morelli, colors by Christy Shield. Pages 42 to 44, written by Mike Grell, penciled by Jackson Geis, inked by Steve Le Aloha, letters by Rick Parker, colors by George Rusis. And the last three pages are written by Archie Goodwin, with pencils by Howard Chaikin, inked by Walt Simonson. That's a little nice combo there. Uh, letters by Ken Bruzenak and colors by Leslie Zoller. The front cover is by Arthur Adams. The back cover is by Jim Starlin, and the logo designed by Janet Jackson, which I won't make the joke because there's a very sad unjoke that has to do with that that we'll get to later. Front cover by Art Adams is great, mostly. Very iconic. This particularly great shot of Wolverine was actually cut out of this cover and used in a a lot of Marvel House ads. I believe I've seen it on t-shirts. It's kind of an iconic Wolverine drawing. Also particularly good on this cover are Nightcrawler and Colossus. Um, The only thing I don't really like is his Magneto. Of course, besides being in my least favorite Magneto costume, he just looks wimpy. He looks like a white-haired teenage boy that's like needs to eat a couple of cheeseburgers. Like he just doesn't look strong or powerful or any of the things you normally associate with Magneto. Now, the logo in question, the controversial logo, as it turns out, is basically just your X-Men logo with Heroes for Hope tacked on top. And it's in blue, and it's got a nice little red heart kind of in the middle in between the letters. Almost like someone showing a heart light on the on the logo on top of it. It's not bad. Back cover by Jim Starlin's not my favorite. Um, I usually really enjoy Jim Starlin, but this is kind of okay. It's uh, some guy that looks like a cross between the Spectre and Ragman, uh, choking the X-Men with a bunch of vines, and Wolverine in particular is uh, decimated. Is that the right word I'm thinking of? He's wasting away. And it's, I mean, it's fine. It's just nothing compared to the front cover, in my opinion. So, in this monster comic... Uh, basically, uh, Phoenix comes outside to find that the school grounds are turned into a desert. And Kitty goes out to save the mailman. And Wolverine goes out to help her because uh, they need his healing factor because everyone that goes out to the desert wastes away. 
we get a nice snick, and Wolverine stabs the mailman, and everything goes back to normal. So he sensed that the mailman was maybe the cause. And there's some kind of entity on the school grounds, and it attacks the X-Men, showing them all their worst inner fears. Uh, Colossus gets trapped in metal. Kitty uh, is starved by this kind of ghost-like figure. Nightcrawler is confronted with his past and his religion, like his religious doubt he's been having lately. Wolverine and Rogue scoured the grounds. Magneto uses Cerebro and is attacked by some monsters, and they're all like, oh, hell, Magneto! So in his, like, worst nightmare, he kind of gets what he always fought for. He's like the ruler, but realizes it's not really what he wants, maybe so much. Of course, Rachel is forced to be a hound again and then even encounters her mother as the Dark Phoenix. Uh, Wolverine, in some of the best pages of the book, is confronted with a younger version of himself. Now, a little bit of retcon um, in that this pre-mutated version of Logan is a little bit too old after we, of course, years later get the origin series. But nonetheless, great pages. There's a just truly iconic picture of Wolverine by Frank Miller. Their styles, Miller and Sienkiewicz, marry together so well. And we have just a wild, feral Wolverine, still in costume but with no mask, and Shadow confronting his human self, who happens to be naked, and kind of hilariously uh, Austin Powers covered in shadow on his uh, uh, private parts. But yeah, these pages are amazing. And Wolverine kind of has to confront. Is he going to be man or beast? The the feral mutant Wolverine or the man he was before he mutated all those many years ago? And they kind of have a scrap, but it turns out, hey, I can be both. I can be the man as Wolverine. So that, that was really cool. Kind of ties in to a little bit some of the themes Frank Miller had in the Wolverine um mini solo series. So I just thought that was really cool. Uh, Storm is confronted with basically an identity crisis, which is what she's kind of had. It's kind of been her major character arc so far. You know, the Mother Earth, the goddess, the cheerleader, a homemaker, a fairy, um, a sex doll, for lack of a better word, and a weird dominatrix. Then she's confronted, uh, you know, on Comedy Bang Bang. Remember, uh, Minnie Swaz is on. They always... Talk about joke about a show being called, or Scott Ackerman always jokes about a show. It's House of Lies being called House of Pies. Well, Storm is confronted by a House of Pies, and a clown throws it in her face, and she's gonna throw it back. She's like, "No, wait! All these people around me starving. I'm gonna use this pie as a weapon, but I won't. I will help feed them." So all the X-Men are kind of knocked on their butt by their nightmares and fantasies or whatever, and they determine that the entity has gone back to Africa. So they take the Blackbird to Africa. They find a famine. They start doing some relief work and what they can and kind of lose sight of tracking down the entity. They just want to help people. Uh, they Some planes come with supplies. And they help pass them out, make it better, try to entertain. Of course, they're just, just confronted with this abject hopelessness. But they do what they can to help the kids. Some of them make it, some of them don't. Then Rogue decides, I, I have to help this whole situation. And she uh, gently borrows <laughs> powers from all her teammates and goes off to fight the entity alone. We get this nice mishmash of Rogue with all the powers visually looking as well. 
kind of like we had on the cover a few episodes ago in our flashback uh, series by John Romita, where she looks like Nightcrawler, but she has, like, Colossus limbs. She even borrows from their costumes. But she goes to fight the Entity, but the Entity is all psychic, and he takes over Rogue's mishmash body and contributes to his own. Luckily, Storm followed along, and she fights the Entity and Rogue and all that together. And as uh, the X-Men wake up, the Entity loses their powers. So they, they come along, and he's gradually losing more and more of his powers. But he still puts up a good fight, but eventually they banish him. Turns out that he feeds off as a mutant, maybe possibly the world's first mutant, don't tell Apocalypse. He feeds off people's misery, and he found a lot of misery here, so he kind of made his home. And they can't really kill him. Storm says, really, we shouldn't try. He's part of the cycle of life. All we can try to do is make people's lives here better and give him less to feed on. And that's kind of kind of where we end up. That instead of despair, let's hope. And that'll help keep this guy kind of in check, at least not becoming so strong. So, the writing actually felt very cohesive with all these different writers. There are some highlights. So Stephen King's part was pretty interesting to read. But yeah, overall, the, the story flowed pretty well. So big ups to uh, Claremont and Nascenti for editing and putting this thing together and keeping it coherent because it felt pretty coherent. The art is a little more disjointed, but it's not too bad. I mean, you knew what you were getting into. You, if you're buying this book for charity, you wanted to see kind of at the time, uh, you wanted to kind of see the jam work. And so you kind of forgive kind of the art kind of up and down. My personal favorites were the Miller-Sinkiewicz pages. And that's not to say they were the only good ones, because they weren't. Overall, the art was pretty good. I was a little disappointed. It's kind of my first time to really see Brent Anderson do normal comic work. Of course, he did kind of a different thing uh, when he did God Loves, Man Kills. And it's kind of normal standard comic art is not nearly as dynamic or impressive. Yeah, I thought the art overall was pretty good. Didn't particularly like uh, this Richard Corbin fella, but that's just a style thing. Uh, it looked like something that would have been popular in 85, particularly maybe some indie stuff. I don't really know his history. wasn't really familiar with that guy. Really, my surprise, another guy I didn't really know, thought this Mike Kaluta guy did a pretty good job. So, of course, he got to do a lot of Phoenix stuff, so that was cool. You know, we had the John Byrne pages that were fine, but... Not, not your normal spectacular John Byrne. Um, then, of course, the pages that'll come into question, the Brian Ballin pages were great. Maybe a little bit sexy, and we'll talk about that some more in a minute. But I don't, nothing really, like, over the top, I didn't think. But yeah, overall, the, the art was, was went from fine to great. No, nothing bad, art-wise. And the story was pretty good. Before we talk about kind of the comic and, and what kind of some of the stuff that went around it, I'm going to say as a comic, it was a little above average. I mean, the story was kind of, all right, fine, the entity, the kind of the idea of, of as heroes realizing that we can fight villains, but we can't fight like just kind of the rough world we live in where stuff just kind of is wrong and we can't fix everything. We can't make the world a perfect place. But we can keep try. We can keep trying. And kind of the point of the book is, hey, maybe you readers, people, can try too. And I think that's a, a point and a message that people still need to hear today. There's a lot of messed up stuff in this world, and we still need to do what we can to balance it to to help people to give to give of ourselves. But I would say, I would, if I was going to grade the book overall, just as a comic, not as a concept, not as what it stood for, 
but just as a comic, I would give Heroes for Hope number one, three out of six claws. Now, there's kind of a big controversy um, at the end of this thing, or at least from what happened. So they originally approached Oxfam uh, to accept the donations from the proceeds, and uh, they got rejected after Oxfam saw kind of a, a preprint of the book. Oxfam said the book was, um, what they call it here? I actually want to read some of this. I'm, I'm going to read this part from uh, the always reliable Wikipedia. So, but this is from kind of Shooter's story. So, Jim Shooter, who's also kind of, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of said that sarcastically that Wikipedia was always reliable, but doubly so, this is coming from Jim Shooter, who I would sarcastically say is always reliable. He kind of like Stanley before him, prone to exaggerate, but take that as you will. I thought it was interesting. So, and I quote, Marvel originally planned for the proceeds from the comic to go to Oxfam for its work in Africa. After previewing the book, however, the organization refused to accept the donation. The Oxfam representative found the comic racist, sexist, and reprehensible, particularly taking issue with the presentation of women in the comic, especially X-Men heroine Storm, who is of African heritage. The representative also apparently believed the comic's logo had been stolen from the singer Janet Jackson. The Jackson family were major supporters of Oxfam at the time, and even refused to believe Marvel when they explained that their Janet Jackson was a different person. So after all that hula-baloo, the proceeds were instead given to the American Friends Service Committee with the first check being in excess of $500,000. So that's what Oxfam turned down. Now, there's a link in here also to Jim Shooter's blog, this particular entry called Heroes for Hope and Why I Don't Like Oxfam America. And he basically recounts his story that after Oxfam rejected the comic, and they offered to meet with the representative to see if they can clear up some of the issues, maybe make some editorial changes to the story and art. And Shooter talks about this guy showed up like super swank, and Jim Shooter comes down pretty hard. It's, and not to agree too much with Jim Shooter, but I would probably in his shoes have come to come to some of the same conclusions. I don't know anything really historically about Oxfam and how legit they were or weren't in the 80s, but Shooter was kind of like, all right, so here's this guy coming in, bad-mouthing what we're trying to do to help them. And he's like, got on a wardrobe that can be sold to feed a lot of people. Like, just basically, maybe they weren't putting all their money in the best places. And of course, there's been many a charity accused of that over the years. And like I said, here I am in 2015, have no right to judge one way or the other. But Shooter's opinion was that maybe these guys weren't all above board so to speak and he talked about how the guy said that he, he thought all the black people were drawn stereotypically even looking like members of the jackson family which is interesting refused to go meet the janet jackson that worked at marvel so uh, apparently they they stole the logo from janet jackson the pop singer who i'm sure doodles logos all day long there's anything i've ever learned about janet jackson is what a doodler she is well well renowned for that obviously yeah so and they took issue from particularly the brian bolland pages or bolland i never really know how to say that which is too bad because i love the guy i should probably learn but saying that they were super sexist with storm and her cheerleader outfit um her little lingerie and then the dominatrix outfit which okay the dominatrix one maybe but 
I think they were trying to tie that back into Storm's punk rock costume at the time. Did they have a problem with that? Was that racist? I don't think so. But I mean, maybe some of the sexism, I don't really see it as being like overboard. But okay, fine. She is in lingerie for 80s comic art. I guess she's kind of hot, maybe. But um, I don't really, I don't know. I don't think it's enough to say we're not, we're not going to accept your charity. Maybe it's enough to maybe complain about a little bit. But, you know, whatever. It's their decision. And they just didn't like the way that they portrayed kind of the African thing. So, you know, I don't know. I felt like, yeah, it's kind of two-dimensional, maybe a little bit. But, I mean, they're trying to raise awareness. They're not trying... Actually, you know, I take that back. I actually feel like they did a decent job at showing some of the complexity of it. Um, that it's not just, oh, these people are starving. Let's help them. Let's Let's have this simplistic solution that... Maybe you might see on one of the commercials, hey, send a couple of bucks and help feed the starving. And everyone's great. I mean, it's not everyone's great. Even with all the good work that charities do today, they still can't solve everything. And there's still complex issues. And I thought for a comic book, they handled it okay. Uh, But apparently Oxfam did not. And so the guy left, you know, in a huff. And so Marvel went elsewhere. The American Friends Service Committee and, and gave all the money there. So, you know, that be what it will. Anyway, I just thought that was really interesting. Kind of a sl- little slice of uh, charity politics from the mid-80s. Yeah, just thought it was an interesting read. So, from um, a sad story about kids starving, we're going to switch over to a story about Thanksgiving dinner. For that, I have a very special guest. Some of you may remember that uh, Andrew Autry has been on the show a few times. What? We're going to talk about an issue of Power Pack, Power Pack number 19, with his daughter Ashton. Hey, Ashton. Hi. How's it going? It's going good. Good. So, since you're a first-time guest, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about kind of how you got into comics, like what kind of turned you on to them or whatever. Well, um, my first comic actually came in a box toy set thing. Okay. It's a... Captain America annual reprint featuring Wolverine. Really? We're about to cover that issue in a couple weeks. And then pretty much my dad got me into him the rest of the way. Okay, cool. So what's kind of your favorite stuff? I'm actually getting really into the She-Hulks right now. Okay. The old sensational She-Hulks. Is that the the John Byrne series? Yes. Awesome. Awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, and I think uh, I think Andrew takes y'all to the the same comic shop that I get my comics at. Oh. Yeah, a little shout out to Awesome in Dallas. I believe y'all have rummaged through the bins there, if I'm correct. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So who, obviously She-Hulk, who are some kind of your all-time favorite characters? Well, I really like Kitty Pride. Oh, uh, yeah, good choice. I'm also, I really like Firestar, too. Oh, interesting. Okay. We'll talk about her a little bit later in the episode as well. Maybe you can stick around for that with your dad. Well, do you remember, and it's okay if you don't, but do you remember, well, I guess you kind of already answered this, so never mind. So your first exposure to Wolverine, then I'm assuming, would have been that Captain America annual. Yes. So what's your, oh, and don't feel pressure just because we're a Wolverine podcast. You don't have to answer this any certain way. What is your overall impression of Wolverine as a character? He's, he's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, good deal. Good answer. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Wolverine, 
He is in Power Pack number 19. This is uh, written by Luis Simonson with pencils by Brent Anderson and Scott Williams. Inks by Terry Austin, Scott Williams, and Sam De La Rosa. Letters by Joe Rosen. Colors by Janet Jackson. Hmm, that's interesting. And uh, I think the cover is by Brent Anderson and Janet Jackson. So, Ashton, what do we have on the cover to Power Pack 19? Well, it kind of looks like they're all charging forward at something. Okay. And then you get a lot of the characters in the book. They're just all fanned out kind of around Beta Ray Bill. Right. Yeah, so we have Beta Beta Ray Bill front and center. How much do you know about Beta Ray Bill? He was pretty involved in the Power Pack series for a while, wasn't he? Um, I only have a couple of the issues with him because okay. that's where my gap is, right where he is. Oh, uh, okay. But I do. Um, I'm pretty sure he does some Thor crossover. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've never actually read a whole lot of him, but he's pretty cool looking, I guess. <laughs> kind of a a cross between Thor and Skeletor and a horse. <laughs> that's um, perfect description. Yeah. <laughs> and so I like this cover. You know, I talked about. Actually, just just before this, I talked about a, a comic called Heroes for Hope. And in that, I had mentioned that uh, Brent Anderson, you know, because he was also kind of the legendary artist on the X-Men graphic novel God Loves, Man Kills, which is kind of a big deal. And he did kind of a really interesting art thing there. It wasn't like your standard comic art. And then his art, Heroes for Hope, was kind of subpar. So I was glad to see that his art in this book was actually pretty good, and I uh, I like this cover. So, would you give this cover a thumbs up or a thumbs down for the art? I give it a thumbs up. Yeah, good deal. Yeah, I like it quite a bit. So, Ashton, why don't you kind of give us a synopsis of what happens in this issue? Well, um, their mom is in the hospital currently, and so they're having Thanksgiving without their parents because their dad's at the hospital with their mom. So Katie, which is the youngest energizer, that's her superhero name, she invites a lot of different people to a Thanksgiving party that's after the Thanksgiving parade. Unfortunately, her older brothers and sister don't know about it. Julie, Alex, and Jack Power, they don't know about it. So then goes on for a while, and she tries to take one of the parade balloons to her mom at the hospital and they find out about the Thanksgiving party and they are not happy. <laughs> no. In the end, everyone comes to the Thanksgiving party, but yeah, including uh, Wolverine and Kitty pride and beta Ray bill. Yes. Yeah, that's a pretty cool Thanksgiving. Have your, your favorite hero show up for your turkey dinner. Maybe it was a good thing their dad wasn't there because that, <laughs> that might have given away their secret identities. Yeah, probably so. And he probably would have freaked out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I thought um, so I had a couple of things kind of uh, and feel free to jump in and interrupt and do whatever you want to do. All right, Ashton? All right. All right. So kind of one of the things that first struck me was pretty early on. I really I like I really liked the way Lou Simonson or, or Wheezy as some circles call her. She writes the kids, they feel very, like, real. They feel like actual kids. And, uh, one of the things that stuck out at me pretty early on in the issue was the way that Franklin, uh, who is um, Franklin Richards, if you don't know, uh, the son of Reed and Sue from the Fantastic Four, and he's kind of befriended some of the Power Pack kids 
And um, he, he talks about how he just wants to hang out with kids his own age, even if they don't necessarily get along all the time. And I thought that was a very, like, honest, sincere sentiment that a kid would have. That just, hey, I just want to be around kids and have friends. And if we don't see eye to eye all the time, that's better than being stuck in the Baxter building by myself. <laughs> so yeah, thought... he fights with Katie all the time. <laughs> you know, they, kind of, they fought like uh, brother and sister, I thought. I also thought it was funny. <laughs> I guess it's on page five. Uh, the kids are arguing. Remind me, what's the, the middle boy? Jack. That's Jack. He keeps saying stuff like, what's the matter with you, bro? <laughs> he, he says that a lot. Yeah. A lot. I thought that was really funny. Um, well, something interesting on page five. Yeah. Jack's costume is actually the, the Unstable Molecules costume, but he's not wearing it when he lands back on the bed oh, yeah. when he comes out of cloud, cloud form. Right. But he has to be wearing it when he comes out of cloud form. Uh-oh. So that didn't make sense, especially since the T-shirt, if you actually look in the first panel, is on the floor. It sure is. Wow. Okay. All right, Ashton, are you familiar uh, back in the old days... They, Marvel had a thing called the No Prize. Are you familiar with the No Prize? No. Okay. So basically the No Prize was if you found a mistake in a comic, then you wrote in a letter and explained why it wasn't really a mistake, and uh, Stan Lee would send you a fabled No Prize. So I want to know what your No Prize explanation for this could be. What, what is a way you can make this work, that you could spin it, so it's not really a mistake, because it obviously is. <laughs> well, maybe there's a different panel that somehow <laughs> is missing <laughs> where he clouded into the clothes. There you go. And so his costume, then unstable molecules would be underneath. I guess. Okay. I think Stan would buy that. So Excelsior. <laughs> so also... Um, Speaking of the art again, I really thought the middle panel on page eight, Jack, right, is the, or no, that's Katie. This just cuts off her Katie, the youngest. Yeah. yeah. So Katie is like, well, mommy will be better soon, right, daddy? Right? And I thought the look that Anderson does on the dad's face was like awesome. Like you can really see the pain in that. that it looks really realistic. Yes. I like that a lot. And then, of course, we go to the... Uh, so we have this whole side story with Annalie and the Morlocks, which the issue... Or the episode that Ethan came on to talk about the power pack from Uncanny X-Men dealt a lot with this. But um, basically, Annalie tried to kidnap the power pack because she lost her kids. And she wanted to have more kids. So she wanted to make the power pack hers. And then somehow through all that, Leech became really attached to her. But she's not very nice to Leech. And she locks him in the closet to go to the Thanksgiving party. <laughs> uh, the, the panel, I guess it's on page 13, where we switch. We have Leech like, trying to get out of the closet, and then we have Leech's cat like scratching from the outside. The way Anderson paneled that and drew that, I thought looked really cool. It does, when you can just see the inside of the box, but yeah. you can't see the background. Yeah, it looks really great. And then the cat, right, so the outside of the box is just white space. It's, it's a really nice, nice panel. The only thing um, I thought on the page before that, Wolverine looks like he just came off of Planet of the Apes. 
like that top panel on page 12, I'm not really digging the, the he, Logan face there. Yeah, I'm just noticing it. He looks like a monkey or something. <laughs> yeah. It's the nose. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Yeah, it, yeah, I think it is the nose and just the way he's frowning. and. Well, actually, the mouth looks like he's trying to smile, but... <laughs> and he can't. <laughs> yeah, I, I can dig that. That's funny. And, of course, we get a classic... Uh, where Kitty phases and walks on the air. And so her and her Logan walk up to the roof. Well, um, on page 18, Kofi, the alien. Yes, the brony. Sure he recently returned to space, actually, in last issue. Oh, so okay. Yeah. It was interesting they brought him back. So I guess there's, there's some subplot going on there that I don't remember. Yes. But, but yeah, it looks like we're just kind of checking in on him. I think it was issue 24 where that became important. Oh, okay, cool. Just in time. So I guess I'm assuming then as 25 kind of a big issue with the whole alien thing. Yes. Yeah, because 25 is usually a pretty big issue in a series. So that makes sense. It'll kind of climax at least part of that story. So does he tie in to the, like, the wizard guys and all that? Yes, those okay. are the snarks. And they have kidnapped the power pack at least seven times throughout power pack history. <laughs> Well, you know, <laughs> I guess you got to keep doing it until you get it right. <laughs> Their uh, parents never notice, though. It's just, oh, my kids got pa- kidnapped again? Oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> Mom and Dad of the Year, order your coffee mugs now. When they first got kidnapped, it was actually because their dad had invented some machine. He's a scientist. and okay. So they got kidnapped, too, the first time. So. <laughs> nice. And so how do they... How they hide their powers when they rescue? Because I'm assuming the kids probably rescued the parents, right? And after a couple of issues, they did. They got them from an alien, Whitney. So. Oh, okay. I did like all the balloons in the parade. Thought that was pretty cool. I really liked how the Kermit, <laughs> like when the balloons go crazy and the Kermit frogs like bumping into the Smokey the Bear and all that stuff. Thought that was nice little fun stuff. Yeah, so on page 23, first of all, we get a snicked, which, you know, this is the podcast that goes snicked, so we always want to point those out. But I was kind of confused on how everybody recognized that this was a psychic attack, because I was under the impression that the whole point of a psychic attack was you didn't know where it was coming from. Yeah, I didn't understand that either. Kitty and Wolverine are standing on the rooftop, and they just and Kitty just goes, oh, Look, there's a psychic attack going on. <laughs> and it's just, how do you know it was a psychic attack? Right, right. Yeah, I thought that was very strange and very, um, maybe a little yeah, too convenient. Hey, look at the balloons. Those people just, hey, feel that. They're under some kind of psychic attack. <laughs> yeah, bless you, Wheezy. Yeah, the only thing I can think of, I guess kind of my no prize, was that Anna Lee is such an amateur or that she's so weak in her old age that, like, she couldn't disguise it very well. And so the X-Men kind of being trained in psychic battle kind of recognized what it felt like to have someone try to pick in their brain. That's the only thing I could think of. And that's pretty weak. That's not going to stand up. But um, that's my best guess. <laughs> I don't have a better one. All right. Well, then we'll go with that. And, of course, Wolverine cuts some balloon ropes. And I like that... Uh, you know, there's a bottom panel on page 24, 
and I wrote in my notes, unfortunately, we don't actually get a Wolverine versus the Tasmanian Devil crossover issue. Because I would like to see that. <laughs> He's like, blah, 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 bub. <laughs> there were no bubs in this issue. There were no bubs in this issue. I was a little disappointed. There were no bubs in this issue. Yeah, and even the snick is just against balloons. <laughs> well, it's a pretty epic battle. They're about three times the size. That's true. I just, you know, if it was like Ghostbusters and the balloons came to life, it'd be more interesting. Yes, it would. Because <laughs> that's pretty much the epic battle of the entire comic book. <laughs> yeah, it really kind of is. Um, Anna Lee making people act crazy, and then our heroes versus the balloons. <laughs> well, they did save the kid in the process. That, True. That's usually a good thing. Yes, that is. And I thought it was cool that so the whole the whole thing about them stealing the uh, Mighty Mouse balloon is because Katie remembered her mom saying that when she went to the parades as a kid, she would see the balloons and to make kind of her forget her troubles or whatever. And that the Mighty Mouse problem was, seems small. I think yes, made the yes, seem small. That's exactly what she says. Thank you. And um. The Mighty Mouse was her favorite. And so Katie, I thought it was a really like sweet sentiment that she wanted to take her mom's favorite balloon to the hospital. I mean, it's kind of like, maybe not the best idea, like practically, but you know, I mean, how old is Katie? Five? Six? Five. Yeah. So, I mean, she had an idea. It was sweet and she tried to pull it off. And, you know, at 35, you say, hey, maybe not the best idea, but at five, it makes sense. So I, I thought that was really sweet. I'm a little confused at how they're holding on to the balloon in one of the panels. <laughs> they're yeah. just sitting on it, but it's vertical, so... But there's no ropes that they're holding on to, and it's a balloon, but... Yeah, yeah, that's pretty crazy. I, I guess... I, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we get several, like, we have... Let's see, we have five full pages of them messing around with the Mighty Mouse balloon, so... But all's well that ends well. Beta, Beta Ray Bill comes and saves them from the balloon. Uh, he pulls it off. And not only that, but he like hides the kids so the dad sees the balloon, but he doesn't see the kids like just in the nick of time. That's a very 80s comics. Actually, this very also like old school comics, like even from the 60s and stuff, where like um, I just I've been listening to another podcast called Avengers Inspirations, and it's a dad and daughter talking about you know, like the original... Avenger stories and they did an old Thor and Thor wanted to go to his hospital and change but people saw him fly by the window and so the only way he could think of to cover his tracks was to put a mannequin in a Thor costume and throw it back by the window so people would be distracted (laughs) which is pretty ridiculous but nonetheless so then we get to dinner Uh, everything kind of turns out for the best I do not like uh, Wolverine and this Lone Ranger ascot he's wearing I know they try to dress him up as, like, a ranch hand a lot, but that was just too much. Well, the red kind of clashes with the purple just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't know this, because this is actually so confession. This is my first time to ever read this issue. And uh, in X-Factor, uh, one of my favorite things about the early X-Factor comics, which I'm actually rereading right now because they kind of parallel with what we're doing in the flashback episodes... But one of my highlights of that early series is Leech and Artie kind of both hang out at the X-Factor complex a lot. And so I really like Leech. And I didn't realize it because this, 
this costume of him like in the hoodie and the toboggan, it's kind of like his classic look or whatever. And I never knew that it came from the Power Pack Kid. So I thought that was really cool to see that kind of the origin of like his kind of established look. So I thought that was interesting. Plus, I really like the way Brent Anderson draws Leech. I think it's a perfect amount of like, I can still looks like a little kid, but he's all like alienish. I, I dug it. Okay, any other comments you have for issue number 19? Well, on page 41, I noticed it just um, the last time I read it. On the first panel of page 41, yes. Katie's got big white letters, brat, written across the back of her shirt. <laughs> yeah. But it's not in any of the other pictures when you can see her back. So. Oh, interesting. And the other picture where she's hugging Kitty goodbye, you can't see it. But I guess that's just because Kitty's hands in the way, I guess. Right. Loophole. Well, it also... Uh, oh, wait. It's in the first panel. You can see the edge of the bee in page 39. The edge of the bee. Oh, yes, you can. And also, between page 37 and 38, she cuts off her sleeves. Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> and they did something funky with the back of Wolverine's hair. Oh, they're always doing something. Which one are you referring to, though? The last panel, the one where the sleeves got cut short. Oh, yeah. I don't even know what's happening. That. It looks like he got shocked, like he stuck his claw in an electrical outlet. I wonder if that's what he does to get his hair like that every morning. <laughs> that, would, that would make sense. That may be the best thing that's ever happened on this podcast, Ashton. Just letting you know. <laughs> that is my new philosophy on Wolverine's hairdo. Is that he just he he, he snicks and he finds an outlet and he sticks his claws in there. That's like, all right, ready to go. I mean, um, he has the healing factor, yeah. so it wouldn't hurt him. So. <laughs> oh, that's legendary. That's podcast gold right there. <laughs> all right, what else you got? Well, it cut off her sleeves some more. Yes, definitely. They, they don't grow back, so her shirt does not have a healing factor. And there's just a, there's several pages of everybody saying goodbye to each other. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a full, like, almost four pages of that. Something I saw was Wolverine is letting Franklin Richards sit on his lap, and I'm thinking he would just go, get off me, bub, and not let the kid <laughs> sit on him. Yeah, he probably would. Because just a couple of X-Men issues ago, he talks about how much he doesn't like kids. That's that's the funny thing about this whole, of him even being in this issue, is he kind of bonded with one of the Power Pack girls in the issue in Uncanny that they were in. But other than that, he's always like, ugh, kids. And then when, like, Scott and Madeline have their baby, he's like, ugh, I guess it's fine for a baby if you like that kind of thing. (laughs) And now here he is, like, playing, like, Uncle Wolvie. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of He'd be an fun. interesting uncle. He would be an interesting uncle. He'd probably have lots of good stories. Go to his house for the afternoon. He'd probably let you eat all the Twinkies you want. <laughs> probably. <laughs> and plus, I mean, we've, we've been doing all the Wolverine appearances up to this point. Up to this point, he has had next to zero interaction with the Fantastic Four. So he wouldn't even really know who Franklin was. So here's like just strange kid like, yeah, just come sit over here. Come sit on Uncle Wooly's lap. <laughs> like, you know, almost, 
knowing that they don't really know each other almost makes it a little um awkward. <laughs> my my guess is that the artists need to fit three faces in one picture. <laughs> yeah, probably. And that's so. the only way they could do it. You're probably right. So, what did you think of the art overall in this issue? It was pretty good. Yeah, I dug it. I mean, there's a couple of like weird things that we talked about, but overall, like I like the short sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is definitely one of them. But and you have the brony earlier, but Overall, I thought the art was pretty good. thought the color work was pretty pretty nice. thought he did a really good job. You know, we talked about the dad's face, but there were, there were several other panels with the kids where the facial expressions were really nice. It really kind of showed, like, what they were going through with the emotion. Especially with Alex, his face shots, he's got a lot of those. Yes. Because he's pretty much grouchy big brother the whole book through. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he is. But even that one where he's looking at the photo of his mom... Like he's got that wistful, like, oh, man. Like, just look on his face, and then when he gets mad. Yeah, just all the, the facial expressions in this in this book are really, really good. So, overall, what's you, what your opinion of the story? It was a pretty good story. Didn't have many fight scenes. No. But it's pretty good considering last, especially considering last issue, their mom got slammed by the Thor crossover guy curse. So. Oh, yeah, that was the uh, Secret Wars tie-in, if I remember correctly. The Beyonder set him loose, which, whoo, those are some rough issues. <laughs> but yeah, I thought the story was pretty good. I thought it got a little wordy at times, but the characters mostly felt very real. And... You know, one thing I also liked a lot about it, and this is something that Simonson is always good at, is I like how they showed all the kids reacting to the tragedy differently. Like, they are all reacting really differently. And it kind of... Alex is just, like, blaming himself. Right. And then Katie's, like, trying to fix it, and then, you know, you have the kids, just, just the way they interact. Like, this... One, one of the, I think, real strengths of the Power Pack series was you felt like they were all a family. Like it wasn't that the writer told you that, like, hey, these guys are related, but you read them and they feel related. And I just, I think that's a really big strength of the book, and that played out in this issue as well. Also, this is one of the uh, better quote-unquote holiday issues I've ever read. Usually, like, when the Avengers do Christmas or some stuff like that, usually not very good story-wise. But this actually, like, had some gravitas and some emotion to it, so... I was pretty pleased to see that. Actually, in one or two issues from now, it's Christmas. Okay. Time flies in comic books. Oh, yeah, definitely. They've got some more mutants in that one. Okay, cool. Not Wolverine. Right. Just, I think the new mutants were in that one. Okay. That's cool. All right. Well, Ashton, what do you... All right, so we do everything on a six-claw scale here. So, Power Pack 19, how many claws out of six would you give it? I think four. Wow, we're going to go exactly the same. I also did four out of six claws. So, Ashton, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Any closing thoughts? No, I think we've got it covered. Okay. It wasn't a very busy issue. No. Kind of. No, it was so, pretty, pretty laid back. I think back. we got it covered. Well, sweet. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, Ashton. Um, really appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. All right. So now joining us as well, we have Andrew Autry. Hey, man. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. 
So, we're going to talk a little bit about a miniseries that had Wolverine in one of the issues, Firestar. And Wolverine is highlighted in a issue number two there. So, Andrew, I, you know, I think we both have a similar story on this. I think, if I remember correctly, you told me, and this is my story as well, I think we both found this set whole at Half Price Books. I mean, not the same that, one, but... That is accurate, Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Ashton, I think, saw it in the bin, and, and then I didn't let her buy it because I wanted it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, so why don't you give me kind of just a nutshell, like, you know, the, the five to six sentence version of the series overall, and then we'll, we'll dive into issue two specifically. Sure. I mean, basically, this is, the whole Firestar thing's really funny because unlike the usual where... Uh, a character is, you know, started in a comic book and then you get spinoffs in television or film. She actually started on television with the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends yeah. cartoon. So this was, you know, like five years later, they decided to do the origin story <laughs> of Firestar. And then like nothing happened again for another couple of years before they finally started using the character. So she had, you know... It was like a, about a, almost a good decade uh, from her creation for the, the television show to her actually being a full-time regular character. And this, you know, this happened in between. So basically the four-issue miniseries is her origin story from her being a 13-year-old girl who finds out she's a mutant and is terrified of her powers to getting confidence and some control over her powers. Your typical, you know, coming-of-age Marvel story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And she, this is concurrent to her kind of debut in Uncanny X-Men, where she is a member of the Hellions, which that'll tie into the story as well. But she really, I don't think, really shines and connects with the readers that much until her new Warriors Day. Does that sound accurate to you? Yeah, that's when they really started actually using her in anything on a regular basis. Cool. All right, well, Wolverine is in um, issue number two. And that is written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Mary Wilshire, finished by Bob Wyacek, so mostly inks, I'm assuming. Then D. Graciunas is a colorist, and then Tom Orjakowski and someone Buhalis does the letters. And the cover is also by Mary Wilshire. And uh, what's on the cover, Andrew? All right, so this one, you get uh, a very terrified-looking Firestar blasting her microwave powers into a uh, reeling backwards on fire flaming wolverine yeah. sort of he's uh the, the hero that can take it <laughs> so he can stay in the kitchen because he's taking the heat that's right um yeah so what do you think of this cover yeah it's, it's actually pretty good uh the art overall in these was was fine it's not you know spectacular but it's it's nice and solid yeah. To me, I think one of the things that stood out throughout the series, but on this, is she looks like a thirteen-year-old. They didn't. Right. They didn't do that typical sometimes where it's like a you know, like we saw in the Kitty Pride Wolverine miniseries where it's, <laughs> you know, she ranges from age twelve to seventy. Right. Um, she looks like a kid. I, I think the action's really dynamic. I thought this cover was actually probably the best art in the whole series was on this cover. Yeah, pretty close. I think Wilshire also had some good facial expressions um, as well. Now, do you know anything about this Mary Wilshire or Wilshire? You know, I looked it up because I was unfamiliar with her. Yeah, I was it, too. It looks like she had a you know about a seventy total credits. Uh, something like that. Okay. I think she uh, penciled Red Sonia for a while when that was a, a series, but... Okay. When it was uh, at Marvel or somewhere else? 
I think with Marvel. Okay, cool. It doesn't seem like she had the kind of a legendary run on any particular series, but okay. yeah, I was I was satisfied with her art. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, me too. So what's uh, I guess yeah, you pretty much already you don't really need to know much more of the plot than what you, what Andrew already said. We do get a cool snicked in here. Um, but it's, it's sort of a faux snicked because that's not actually Wolverine. Oh yeah, that part's not. That part is a what is it? A hologram? It's a robot. Oh, a robot. <laughs> Yeah, that's arcade style, some robot Wolverine. My favorite part, <laughs> they get invited to the dance at the Massachusetts Academy. Or as Cameron would say if he was here, the Massachusetts. <laughs> I did think it was funny, too, at one point, uh, Wolverine in here is the practical one. And he talks about going to the dance, and he's like, I don't like it. It's just plain stupid to put yourself in your enemy's hands when you have nothing to gain. Um, right, because he's he's usually the voice of discretion and and reason where partying is concerned. <laughs> right. Well, especially when fighting's concerned. Right. I can't even understand I mean, if they're like gonna. Like, maybe he doesn't want to go be the chaperone of the dance, but to say I don't want to fight, like, that's that's kind of weird. Um, yeah, I mean, this page is his only actual appearance because you had Robot Wolverine, and then actually I think it's in issue three. You have her having a nightmare with some sort of like nightmare demonic looking wolverine yeah yeah you do this is this is really his only appearance is is this panel with him dropping his one line (laughs) where he says i don't think the kids should dance (laughs) and you know referring to your 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 last uh discussion he clearly did not hit the electric socket that morning this is about the (laughs) flattest wolverine hair you know i've seen it's like really uh damp weather or something yeah yeah very humid it's definitely still parted probably even more parted than usual he's got kind of like the old school um like 20s bartender haircut (laughs) that's right and then what's up with the in that same panel what's up with sunspot's hair you know he's got he's got his uh <laughs> I don't even know what to say but I can't stop looking at his skinny tie. <laughs> it is it is as skinny tie as it goes. Yeah, and the skinny tie with the unbuttoned shirt that's uh that's about as classy as you get in 1985. It is. I'm sorry, this is actually 86. My bad. Um, oh, but he didn't he know skinny ties were out by 86? <laughs> Sunspot. Right. And then uh, my favorite part, or one of my favorite parts, so they're at the dance, and uh, Sam and Angelica, who's Firestar, are dancing, and they're really, really bad at it. And the way they show that is when they step on each other's show- shoes, there's little lightning bolts. Right. <laughs> that was nice. Yeah, um, I mean, honestly, I, I thought this was really kind of great that they actually, uh, you know, a lot of times, especially in a miniseries where you've got guest stars, they just are super caricatures of themselves, or the writer's really unfamiliar with them. Right. And, you know, and they they really actually did capture that era of the New Mutants really well. The you know the super cocky Sunspot, the really awkward and shy Sam uh, is is pretty well done. Yeah, I agree. Oh yeah, and you get you get Firestar's first kiss. That's true. His cannonball. Yeah, and and unlike most X Men stories. She doesn't burn Cannonball alive when they start making out. <laughs> right. Usually, she, little, usually a little make out makes your mutant powers flare up. But but she gets the same uh, the same lesson learned about how her powers are too dangerous. You know, hers is a little forced by uh, Emma Frost. But that three panel sequence cracked me up. 
Because it's actually kind of a sad thing. Like, she had, like of this whole school, this horse is like her best friend. Right. Like, more than They're any of the friends. other students, whatever. And so you have what should be a really emotional scene where Emma actually, like, burns the barn but makes Firestar think that she burned the barn. Uh-huh. And so we have this swoosh crackle. And then we have this weird, like, squiggly outlined whinny. Like the, of the pain of the horse, like the horse crying oh, yeah, out in pain. Butter rum is freaking out. Yeah, it ruins the whole sequence. <laughs> Swoosh, crackle. Oh, Annie. <laughs> and she's like, butter rum? Which, yeah. Yeah, and then it's pretty harsh. I mean, Emma kills the horse to make her point. Yeah, it's Emma's like, I want stone to be so cold. so terrified of her own powers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill butter rum. Right. Man, I mean, nobody kills butter rum. I mean, she's got to know that's going to circle back around. Yeah, that's that's when she overreached her grasp on that one. That's bad karma, yeah. and not karma the new mutant. That's <laughs> just well, regular karma. To be fair, in my humble opinion, almost all karma in New Mutants is bad karma. <laughs> She's probably the worst character. <laughs> yeah. Especially whenever they make her like 900 pound karma. I that was so that. weird. I forgot that about really that. Weird. That's <laughs> very bizarre. I forgot about that until we covered the uh, the annual. That's the uh, the crossover with the Asgard stuff, uh-huh. and they gave like a page of like karma flashback history. And the weirdest part about that and that issue, they don't even explain it. There's just this one panel where she's like breaking a couch, right? That she sat on, and then next panel, like, oh yeah, and then you know my dad's a warlord and whatever. You're like, what? <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah, it's it's not really interesting enough to go into here. Yeah, no, I, I'm assuming, I know he wasn't the writer ever on New Mutants, but I'm assuming that was a Jim Shooter mandate because he, it, hate, he hated women and fat people, so. It, it felt very Jim Shooter-ish. <laughs> um. Well, and he was, the whole time, you know, he was trying to figure out if he could get the Beyonder in there, too. Right, right. Oh, my goodness. This is not, we don't want to rehash that. <laughs> I have a lot of Jim Shooter Beyonder hate. <laughs> and that can turn into an hour rant. So right. instead, let's talk about, so kind of generally thought the art was pretty good in this issue overall. Yeah, overall. I mean, there's nothing out of the ordinary. There's nothing, you know, where you look at it and you go, wow, that's a poster or wow, that's really, really creative paneling. But right. there's also nothing where I looked at it and I was like, oh, wow, that's really bad. I mean, no. it's just it's solid. Again, really... The thing that was consistently done is she looks her age throughout. Right. I thought that was really well done. I agree with what you said before, good facial expressions. You know, on page eight, there's an amazing fuzzy sweater that looks really fuzzy. So I think that's great art. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Um, oh, overall, I mean, I really, I really thought it was pretty solid. I'm kind of surprised I'm not more familiar with the artist. I thought sometimes her stuff looked a little stiff, a little not not the kind of great action you see on the cover, but just especially the horse. The horse looked like a wooden toy of a horse. I mean, yeah, there was a little he... bit of stiffness, but overall, I thought it was really good. I really did not care for the inking. I felt like maybe the finishes on this stuff was kind of what kept it from jumping off the page as much. Yeah, all right, so, so a few examples that kind of back up all the things you just said. The inking on page one, like that full page, uh, kind of like on her hair and her face, the inking and the coloring kind of messed that up. 
I thought. Mm-hmm. And then an exa- a couple of examples of great faces. Uh, Emma's face on page five, the close-up, makes her look super sinister and like Machiavellian and mischievous. Then we have a great page of Firestar's face on page 13. The bottom panel where she looks really mad is a great face. And then, yeah, some more kind of bad inking like on page 14 in those top two panels. You know, I would think, I would say more than anything, the inking just looks inconsistent. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, I almost and it's sometimes want... just not a, it's like there's not enough of it. Right. Like, I know you don't want to err on the side of too heavy inking, but it's like some of this, it just, it needed some depth to it and it just wasn't there. Yeah. So, um, what do you think of this story overall? I mean, as far as origin stories go, it's, it really struck me as pretty typical. Um, yeah. I I, you know, I'm a sucker for New Mutants and New Warriors and right. a lot of those, uh, you know, angsty type groups from the 80s to early 90s. So, I mean, I kind of like the tie-in with the Hellions. I like the tie-in with the New Mutants. I like the kind of tug-of-war for this young mutant. I mean, it's it's reminiscent of the tug-of-war for Kitty when she when she came out where it's, you know, everybody kind of liked to, liked to get this young exciting mutant on their team and actually all of this kind of circles back around in the new warriors where um the hellions try to come and claim uh firestar as their own and it turns into a big battle oh. between the new mutants and the hellions okay to decide her fate and much like in this series she's kind of like uh you know i'm gonna decide my own fate guys so uh <laughs> this was kind of stupid yeah you know, overall i kind of i liked the arc of the story how it ended with her essentially going you know nuclear pretty much and, right uh you know because i would say firestar is one of my favorite characters i think she's really cool okay um, interesting uh, i really like uh the character she becomes in the new warriors i mean you do, you kind of start to see some sparks of it in here so i, I kind of like the overcoming the insecurities it's it's it is kind of typical. It's not really super exciting, but as far as origin stories go, I thought it was fine. Yeah. Yeah, it was all right. Um, I kind of, I felt like every issue, I kind of had the same circle with Emma, and I kind of felt like, okay, like, we really kind of did the same thing, like, four times until it finally, like, it just got a little bit bigger each time until it finally blew up in her face all the way. But like, I yeah, felt like, this, this could have been a one-issue series. Yeah, definitely. Like, a double-sized, nice one-issue. Yeah, the kind of the weird part to me, because I've been uh, doing the flashback stuff, I've been reading a lot of concurrent like whatever i have in my collection that kind of goes along at the same time i really like defalco right now he's kind of in the middle of his pretty long amazing spider-man run with ron friends and a lot of that stuff's really really good i mean minus the secret wars 2 stuff which is all terrible but um but like he does a lot like that's a lot of the original hobgoblin stories and all that stuff is really really good and like the action is just you're talking about how this book lacks excitement like, he showed in Spider-Man the ability to write exciting stories. That you're literally, like, turning the page waiting to see what happens. And the issue ends and you're like, oh, man, what's the next one? And, like, I got none of that from his writing in this series. Not no. and Again, not to say it was bad. I just, there was nothing really compelling about it. No. I mean, I guess, I guess he just didn't know how to write 13-year-old girl. <laughs> well, I mean, can't fault him too much for that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's... But no, I agree. It's just, it, it, there really, I don't think there was enough story for four issues. And maybe part of this is just retrospect, too. It it feels like a familiar storyline. It yes. doesn't, 
it kind of feels like you've sort of read this sort of story before. Right. I would agree with that. All right. So overall, how many claws would you give the Firestar logo? The logo itself? <laughs> yeah. Or did you say the, or the series? No, the logo. Let's do the logo. <laughs> Just the logo? <laughs> That logo is getting one star, one claw from me, man. That's, <laughs> that is awful. But it's all lightning bolts. Yeah. Like third grade Jason would have loved designing this logo. What's funny is the the eye would have been the easiest one to make in a lightning bolt. And it's <laughs> it's the not. only letter with no lightning bolt is the eye. It, it literally is the only one. You're right. Like even the T has a tiny little lightning bolt at the top. Yeah. That's funny. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it's it, the the logo's terrible. <laughs> All right, but uh, the issue. How, when you when you want to grade Firestar number two? Yeah, for me, it's kind of the same as the whole series and this issue. I, I would rate the same. I'd give them. I'm torn between two and three. I'm going to give it three based on my great affinity for the character. Okay. And just the 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 weird circumstances of how long it was to do for her to show up in the comics after her debut on TV. I, I'm going to go with the three, but it's a qualified three. Okay. Well, I was also kind of teeter tottering between a two and a three. And so using your logic, I'm going to go with two out of six claws because I've honestly never read a whole lot of Firestar. So I don't have the emotional tie to it that you do. Did you at least watch the TV show? Oh, yeah, yeah. I love the TV show. Okay. Yeah. But so, yeah, so so kind of, I think we're in basically the same place, but you'll give it three out of six claws, and I will give it two out of six claws. And that is Firestar number two. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Andrew and Ashton, for coming on. Um, That was great. Love having you on, and it was great to have Ashton on this time as well. So thank you guys both. All right. Have a good one. Anything you want to plug before you get out of here? Anything going on? Nothing really new. Right, you want to shout out your wife's novel again just for... Yeah, absolutely. She is uh, just about to send her second novel in the Ransom series to the editors. So probably by the end of this year, book two, awesome. uh, Rise of the Seer, will be coming out. And again, the first book is called Ransom of the Healer. It is kind of supernatural fiction, uh, modern fantasy, whatever you want to call it. So... Go find it on Amazon or barnesandnobles.com under A.C. Autry, A-U-T-R-Y, and the book's called Ransom of the Healer. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks, guys. All right. Have a good one. You too. Well, now that we've got our guest out of the way, uh, just kidding. The Autrys are definitely the highlight of this episode. But before we go, I do want to touch real fast on Marvel Fanfare number 24. Marvel Fanfare is, of course, an anthology book, kind of a, a high-priced anthology. This was a buck fifty back then, and it was because it's on high-gloss pages is why it was more expensive. So we have our first story, The Were-Men of Lord Raven. This is a fantasy story by uh, Doug Minch and Mike Plug, with inks by P. Craig Russell, letters by Jim Novak, colors by Petrus Gotees. Then we have Eulogy, which is written by Chris Claremont. Pencils by David Ross, inks by Bob Wyacek, letters by Rick Parker, and colors by Bob Sharon. Now we have a front cover and a back cover on these Marvel fanfares. The front cover is by P. Craig Russell, and it's just kind of standard elf 
fantasy stuff. It's fine, I guess. And on the back by David Ross, we have a cover of Carol Danvers as Binary on a intergalact or in fr- standing in front of an intergalactic tombstone we have a night sky full of multicolored stars and the specter of the grim reaper about to uh cut her down maybe it's a much better cover they would have enjoyed this on the front though they would have had to have arranged it a little bit differently to fit the title on it because it takes up the whole thing and, and does it very nicely um so our first story about the Men, just kind of basic like i said elf fantasy stuff we have these Two elves, Tyndall and Valana, and they're roaming around Weird World, just trying to to find a place where they fit in. They meet a guy named Mudbutt, and he has angered Lord Raven by stealing something small, he says. But Lord Raven releases his weremen to basically punish him, and they eventually get away, but find themselves at Lord Raven's castle. The art on this was fine. I actually enjoyed the colors. Probably the highlight of this was was the color work. And the story was fine. It felt very like elf fantasy meets Saturday morning cartoons. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, so our, our story that has Wolverine in it is Eulogy. And this is, we have our classic Avengers poker game. And we have Nick Fury and the Thing showing up late to Avengers Mansion. And then in the shadows we see Carol Danvers and Logan. And they're going to uh, try to join the game. So they come in, uh, Jarvis recognizes Carol, and she introduces him to Logan. And he's like, all right, come on in, play some cards. Carol comes in, Thing doesn't know her, but Beast does. Wonder Man is so awestruck by her beauty. He lifts up his sunglasses and his eyeballs turn and, like, explode. <laughs> I think they're just trying to show his power, but it very much reminded me of the uh, the wolf from the Tex Avery cartoons, where his, eyeball, like, he's like, Whoa! his eyeballs pop out and they are yeah, it literally looked like he like lifted his glasses like and then his eyeballs blew up because Carol was just too hot to handle. And then of course Wolverine sneaks in and lights Nick Fury's cigar and we find out that they have a past. They they did some work together before Nick Fury went to S.H.I.E.L.D. or at least before he took over S.H.I.E.L.D. They reference Radovostok. I can't pronounce that but I'm guessing it's somewhere in Eastern Bloc Europe. <laughs> where they they did some missions together so they play cards and the thing grumbles about losing to wolverine too much and carol's like yeah i taught him how to play and in case you think she's just running her mouth wolverine's like yep in tokyo so she actually taught wolverine how to play cards or at least how to play poker so that's pretty cool and, uh so they're they're running the table pretty much and then there's a bright blinding light we get a pretty cool instance uh, where everyone's in silhouette where Wolverine pops his claws under the table. I don't think anyone really maybe knows who he is, I guess. I mean, Nick Fury does. But at this point, would he know about the claws? Not at this point in continuity for sure. Because remember, at this point in time, the claws came with Weapon X. And it sounds like their time together was prior to that. So, and at the Fantastic Four, anyone else know that Logan is Wolverine? They don't seem to express that. But then he blows his cover, he jumps up on the table. But it's not a threat, it's the new Captain Marvel just making an entrance. Quite an entrance, they all say. So introductions are made, and then suddenly it's revealed, or Carol asks, well, what do you mean Captain Marvel? I knew Marvel, this isn't him. And they're like, oh yeah, he's dead. <laughs> so she turns into binary and shoots out the ceiling. Um, and Wolverine's like, uh-oh. <laughs> and he gives us, the reader, a little recap of how she turned into binary. Uh, and then, of course, the rogue thing. 
And we see that Binary, Carol Danvers, goes to uh, see uh, Marvel's tombstone uh, with a little Saturn on top. It's a pretty cool looking tombstone for an intergalactic hero. And we find out they had a past. They were even lovers. And he saved her life one time. But now she's mad that she didn't get to say goodbye. So she goes back some days later on Earth. We see her on a bluff. We have the water. We have a nice, actually really nicely colored sunset reflecting over the waves. And she recognizes that Logan has found her. And she's like, how'd you find me? He's like, I knew where to look. And Carol says, uh, basically, that, you know, she talks about how Professor X helped her find her memories. But there's no emotion attached to the memories. That she knows her and Logan have a past, and she recognizes him as a friend, but she doesn't feel anything. And she kind of wishes that she had just maintained a blank slate and not got her memories back. Uh, that all her memories, all her emotional attachment... Rogue has that. When she absorbed the personality, she got the emotions and memories as well. And anything she felt for people are now Rogue's feelings. Or at least Rogue's in possession of them. And um, Wolverine's like, but if you didn't have your memories, I mean, what about all the people like me that remember you? And she's like, well, I don't know. I'm just confused. So I'm going to, I got an offer from Corsair to join the Star Jammers after the Broom Saga. So we kind of find out where the story actually fits in continuity. So it's, it's in between the Broom Saga and when she went to join the Star Jammers. And so she tells Logan, that's her intention, to go take her place among the stars with the spacefaring crew of the Star Jammers. And uh, Wolverine's like, I'll miss you. And she just flies away and thinks to herself, well, I won't miss you, leaving Wolverine in quite a shock. Like, whoa, hey, I was hugging you. We actually find out about when uh, Wolverine broke Carol out of that prison, and then there was especially that last night in Lubyanka, so maybe there was a little more than just friendship between them. Maybe a little night of passion or whatever. But um, she said, again, thanks to herself, I remember that it happened, but I don't, I don't feel anything about it. So she's going to try to go form her new memories, new feelings, new emotions with her new life as binary, and she leaves Wolverine standing on the cliff. Just kind of like mouth wide open. Um, thought the art was pretty good. Sometimes the glossy pages in the 80s doesn't really work for me. The art can be colored kind of weird, but this looks this looks fine. And I like the story. Uh, of course, we have some first. This is the first time that Wolverine ever goes to one of our famous hero poker games. Um, we find out that him and Nick Fury have a past. We find out more about his past with Carol Danvers. So there's a lot, a lot of little tidbits here. I enjoyed this story quite a bit, I won't lie. The first story I can give or take, neither here nor there, don't really care. But this last one, I always like the friendship between Carol Danvers and Logan. And so we see some of that fleshed out. So I enjoyed it quite a bit. Overall, I will give Marvel Fanfare number 24, 4 out of 6 claws. Hey, so real fast, I'm going to give everybody a little bonus snicked. I'm going to talk about X-Factor number 1. Now I put a little reader, or not reader, um, listener... Put a little listener poll out there on Facebook and Twitter to, about this issue. And no one on Twitter responded at all. <laughs> and only one person responded on Facebook, and that was Pat. And uh, Pat, let me see if I'm saying this right. I believe the intonation of what you said was skipper, eh? So even though the cover to X Factor 1 says, because you demanded it, well... I guess this is the uh, segment of the episode that no one demanded. But we kind of have the same thing we had with the return of Jean Grey in Fantastic Four number 286. 
and that Wolverine is included in the recap. And we get another recap <laughs> in X-Factor number one. Um, real quickly, this is written by Bob Layton. Pencils by Jackson Geis. And that's also Butch Geis, just by the way. Which I forgot that he's, he kicked this series off. It's inked by Bob Layton, Jackson Geis, and Joseph Rubenstein. Colors by Petrus Gotiz, Max Schill, and Glennis Oliver. And the cover is by renowned X-Factor artist Walt Simonson. At least that's what it says on the database. I don't see his typical cool signature anywhere to be found on here. And it looks neither especially like or especially dislike him. The fire kind of looks like him. So, I don't know. I'm not I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just... Normally, there's a, a very distinct Simonson and his little... Whatever you can call that signature he does. And that is noticeably absent. But... That's what the interweb says, so we'll see. But it is a cool cover, other than Beast Face being a little weird. Um, everybody looks pretty cool. I especially like um, Cyclops in his new X-Factor uniform. I like all the X-Factor. I mean, Iceman and Beast are just in their undies, as usual. But I like the uh, the different colored X's, almost a Voltron thing. Well, like Scott's blue and yellow, and Gene is mostly green. Angel is mostly red, but they all have these X's across their uniform. I think it looks pretty cool. And of course, yeah, I've always thought it was funny that Beast was hanging from a stalactite. So, anyway, that's the cover. So, basically, uh, we start off with Scott and Madeline and a still, I think, unnamed baby in uh, Alaska. And Scott's watching um, news about the mutant menace, quote-unquote, on TV. And, of course, it bothers him. And he's having trouble. And their marriage is kind of going on the rocks. She resents him for not wanting to come to Alaska. Uh, he misses Jean and misses kind of having a purpose as the leader of the X-Men, I guess. Dad and husband just doesn't cut it. <laughs> anyway, we get a super sexy angel flying through the mountains. The Defenders have just disbanded. So Angel's working on his cabin. Iceman and Beast are going to go home to regular jobs. And then we get a segue to San Diego. There's some naval pe- Navy people, and one of them is a mutant, and he accidentally burns his chief's, not date, I guess. So then Angel gets a call from Reed Richards from the end of Fantastic Four, and we wondered who he was calling. Well, it was Angel, and he knows Jean's alive, so he flies literally across the country to see her. He calls Cyclops, who literally drops everything, doesn't even tell Madeline where he's going. He just says, I gotta go. And she's like, if you go... Don't come back. He's like, sorry. <laughs> and he leaves. And then he meets Gene in this panel that literally I can hear the TV show of this of this comic. And everybody erupts in applause. Yeah, the little applause button comes on when Scott walks in the room and sees Gene. And so I guess we're supposed to be happy that, you know, they're back, quote unquote, together, even though there's still a long way to go before that happens. But um, yeah, so we're supposed to be happy that, that Scott is leaving his wife, and abandoning his son. Because, hey, hashtag Scott and Gene, right? Yeah. Um, anyway, Scott's kind of a jerk. And, of course, he's keeping secrets. He can't tell Gene that he's married because then she might run off. And that would be terrible. So, anyway, they decide they have to do something. Gene is um, upset that all her original X-Men buddies are retired. And they decide, you know, they're going to come up or Angel, I guess, comes up with this scheme 
of X-Factor. And basically, they're going to pretend to be mutant bounty hunters, like you call them if you have a mutant problem, and they kind of exterminate, kind of a Ghostbuster-type thing for mutants. But in reality, they will be heroes and saving these mutants instead of capturing them. When they take them away, they're going to take them and offer them a chance, you know, to train, to learn how to use their powers. Kind of all the original X-Men type stuff with Professor X's dream. And of course, their first case is Rusty Collins, the uh, aforementioned sailor who burnt his chief's girly, girly girl. And so they do that. They find him. He's got fire and stuff. That's kind of his power. But the team comes together at the end. Um, I don't, as much as I like the X-Factor uniforms, I don't really like the official X-Factor as a corporation uniforms. It's kind of a blue jumpsuit with white lines and little X's. Not that cool. Anyway, actually, I think that my favorite page of art is the last page. We have a lot of shading and halftone and stuff. And it's Madeline Pryor at the house in Anchorage, Alaska, watching the news about X-Factor and and staring wistfully at a photo of Scott and the baby. And you know, something's going to go wrong there. So overall, um, yeah, the Scott and Madeline Jean thing is, is weird. You know, and they try to make Scott come off a little better because he's really wrestling with it. You know, like, what am I going to do? I'm married to Maddie, but I still love Jean. And here she is. She's alive. I thought she was dead, but she's not. And blah, 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 blah. And he's all angsty and whatever. And that's all fine and good, but you can tell the decision has already been made. I mean, not even in retrospect, like reading it. Like, obviously, they're putting the original X-Men back together. That's the point of X-Factor. And the thing reads like an old X-Men story. They have, like, Maneuver 5 and whatever, and, you know, all the crazy stuff that the the very first issues of X-Men had. And the conversation's kind of that way, too. And you know there's a mandate that <laughs> that Scott's going to eventually choose jeans. So you know that the wrestling is a little insincere as a reader. Kind of going through the motions, so Scott's not a complete jerk, but, I mean, really, no one believes it. And not only that, also to make him feel a little less like a jerk, they've been kind of building up to this and that outside of Gene's return and the formation of X-Factor, Scott and Maddie were already starting to have problems really kind of abruptly in the last few months of reading uh, at this time, just kind of suddenly their, their marriage was really rocky and kind of culminated in uh, Uncanny 201 when Scott didn't want to go home. He wanted to stay and lead the X-Men and Madeline was like, no, you have a wife and a baby and I have a business and we have a home in Alaska. Come home. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll have a duel with Storm. If I, if, I, if I win, I'll stay here and be the X-Men, which I really want to do. If I lose, then I will put my child between my legs and come home and, and be a dad and a, and a husband. You know, reading mid-80s X-Men and the beginning of X-Factor, you remember why it's hard to like Cyclops. Just my personal opinion. See, I think it would have been more interesting, though, and more compelling if the marriage was in good standing and this was really, like, this super hard decision and horrible wrestling match emotionally for Scott. If he had a good marriage and had to choose between that and the love of his life he thought was dead, then he's actually wrestling with something. Now they've given him all these excuses with the Rocky marriage and stuff like that. That's going to be an easy call. He's still a jerk, but they try to uh, massage some of the jerkiness away. Uh, through the plot. I will say, his angst makes for good drama, so the story's not that bad. I just don't 
think Cyclops is being a very stand-up guy right now. Anyway, the writing was overall pretty good. A little stilted at parts, but it really did kind of have the feel and the tone of like the original X-Men stories. And I really liked that. And the art was, was pretty good overall. It's a big book, lots of pages. I mean, for our first issue, they really packed it in. But yeah, so I'm going to give um, X-Factor number one, five out of six claws. It was cool to, to revisit this. I'm going to read some more X-Factor as we go along, kind of parallel to what we do on the, in the flashback episodes. So anyway, that's X-Factor number one. Okay, so that's going to do it for this flashback episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Had a lot of good stuff. Really enjoyed having uh, Ashton and Andrew Autry on. Of course, Andrew's a, a favorite of mine and of the listeners, I'm sure. And it's always cool to hear things from a, a younger reader's perspective. So I was really excited to have Ashton on and just kind of, you know, I mean, she's the future of comics, right? Like we got to get kids reading some more. So it's always cool to have have that perspective on. Really enjoyed that. Hope you did too. So um, I don't know what will be next. Something. <laughs> More podcasting, more snicked. Um, but yeah, so in the meantime, please uh, leave an iTunes review if you feel so inclined. Like the Facebook page. Twitter is at snickcast. Email us snickcast at yahoo.com. Show notes and all that business is on uh, snickcast.podbean.com. And did I already say Twitter at snickcast? I think I did. So, hey, I'll say it again. Twitter at snickcast. So whatever comes next, till then, hugs and snicks. Bye.